know what time it is. Welcome back to the ZZ and D Show. I'm your host, Elliot Zaleski, alongside Zach Kornberg. Once again for season two, episode two, unfortunately, uh, D isn't able to join us again, but I promise that she'll be back for the next episode. But it's all right. The show must go on. And with us, I know you really enjoyed the episode we had with uh, Graham Carletta uh, a few weeks back. That was a great conversation. And I promised you that we would be bringing the same level of uh, energy with our next guest. And I told you you wouldn't be disappointed. And that absolutely turned out to be the case. With us right now, we have longtime Brockport student and resident, Junior August. He's one of the most iconic, notable people in all of Brockport, and it has been a pleasure to be speaking with him prior to the show, and I'm really excited to have him on. Junior, introduce yourself. Howdy, y'all. This is Junior D. August here. Elliot, thank you for the wonderful introduction. It's a pleasure just being here, so I hope we have a good time. Hell yeah, guys. Welcome back. We are back in the saddle again, and today we are going to be talking about what it's like coming from different parts of New York and living in western New York where it's very, very snowy, and sports fans are absolutely insane. Yeah, so earlier today we were figuring out what kind of thing we should talk about because Junior is a really well-rounded guy, as I'd like to say that uh, me and Zach are as well. And we have, we've all got some different interests. Uh, but So there's a lot of stuff we could have talked about. But one thing that we noticed in our conversation earlier today before we turned the mic on is that all of us, the three of us, are from very unique, distinctive parts of the state of New York. I originally hail from Albany. Um, Junior is from New York City. And then we've got um, Zach. If you couldn't tell by the ridiculous, obnoxious accent, he's from uh, Long Island. Or uh, should I say Long Island? The <laughs> the uh, <laughs> um, most notable accent in all of the state of New York, as you would say it. Um, I honestly think it should be a, a different country based on the way you guys speak. But that's all right. We are all New Yorkers. Um, nonetheless, we all fall under the jurisdiction of the Honorable Andrew, Governor Andrew Cuomo, and we're going to talk about what it's like um, living in New York, which, and you'll see through our conversation that it's turned out to be one of the most culturally, economically, and politically diverse states in the entire Union, despite its relatively small geographic size. So from, if we have any listeners from outside of the state of New York, you might not understand how complicated the dynamic here really is in terms of all of the uh, socio-political factors I just mentioned. So New York City, obviously, it's very different from upstate. Residents from upstate don't know much about the city. Residents from the city don't know much about upstate. And, but we all share some common problems, such as uh, the relatively high tax burden and some of the restrictive uh, um, laws that you could argue are unconstitutional. So we're going to dive into that. And we, we all live in Brockport, obviously, which is from the west western part of the country or of the state, which is, again, a really, really unique uh, location within the state that n neither of the three of us ever really had experienced before coming out here to Brockport. So, yeah, we're going to discuss what that's been like for all of us and how we've kind of assimilated into the culture of Western New York, which is very different from where we all grew up. Ellie, you brought up a good point overall. Coming from New York City, I can tell you this much. It's a huge cultural shock, and with only looking at the socio-political mindset, we have to take in the sense of the social aspect when it comes towards the development of the human psyche and the mind and just the growth of development of an individual. It's quite different, I could say, the very most part. Now, one thing I'll ask, Junior, is spending the whole your whole life in the city. You said, I'm sorry, Brooklyn, right? Brooklyn, New York. Right, Brooklyn. So, what coming to Brockport in 2015, right? What coming to Brockport was the biggest cultural shock out of all the things you mentioned, the single most 
um, th most unique thing about this place here in Brockport, Rochester area, that you were not expecting and that you had to adapt to um, while moving from the very different location that is uh, the iconic New York City? Well, yeah, just to be uh, straight with you, coming from New York City, specifically in Brooklyn, Flatbush, born and raised, I spent my time in many areas from there. I went all the way to even Long Island. I was in high school at West Hempstead High School. I graduated there. I was accepted to Brockport back in 2013. I decided to come to Brockport into 2015 after spending my time in my community college. And the biggest shock factor that came to me wasn't more in a sense of, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting this or even had any uh, mindset of it. It was more in a sense of just being here, taking the time and getting used to the new environment, new area where I didn't know anyone and no one knew me. And, you know, and quite honestly, that was liberating. It was a great experience to have, but it was stressful in a sense when it comes to the fact that you're starting off from scratch. And that's one thing that I've really come to like about the college experience after having been here for the past four years, it really gives you the opportunity to reinvent yourself, for better or for worse. That's the only problem. A lot of people are really satisfied with who they were in high school. And I'll give you guys the opportunity to um, talk about how this experience has changed you. But me personally, coming to college, I didn't really like the person I was in high school. I was really irresponsible, kind of lazy as well. Like, yeah, I played sports and everything, but I really didn't have a sense of my identity as a person. And... I thought coming here to Brockport, brand new location, I don't know a single person, kind of like you were saying, Junior, it's, it, like you said, it, I couldn't come up with a better word to summarize it than liberating. Your identity that you had in high school and even prior to that, or if you went to community college, that too, it's a thing of the past. No one knows you and it gives you a completely clean slate and that's one of my favorite things about it. But again, you have the added challenge of adapting to a new environment, so you, it's really it's kind of an interesting situation to try to reinvent yourself in a new location where you ha know nothing or very little, uh, albeit, about the culture or uh, where you're going to be. But you have to understand that everyone that you meet is probably under the same circumstances as well. So that's, in my opinion, that's really cool. Yeah, so uh, piggybacking off uh, what Junior was just saying, you know, coming from Long Island, um, you know, even the suburbs there are less spread apart than, you know, what we have in Brockport. And, um, you know, I'm used to just walking 15 minutes to the LIRR, and I'll be into the middle of Manhattan in 45 minutes. Then I can hop on the subway, go wherever I want. But, you know, being here in Brockport, like, everything is relatively inaccessible, especially if you don't have a car. Like, uh, you know, I love going to the firing range with Z, as you've probably seen on our Instagram. And, uh, you know, if, uh, if it wasn't for Z's car, you know, that wouldn't be possible for me. But, um, you know, it's, it's really cool just having a different environment and, you know... Being raised in a different environment gives rise to different types of people with their own unique experiences, too. Um, I've had some interaction with, um, you know, some of the locals here, too, because I'm, I'm a big part of the Jewish community around here. And, um, you know, it's really cool. You know, a lot of them have lived in Brockport, Lockport, um, you name it, any, like, the local areas for many, many years. And, uh, you know, it's just really cool just seeing this sort of thing. And uh, there's, there's vastly different political differences, too, especially uh, being from different regions. As uh, it's generally speaking, when you're around cities, it, um, it, it tends to be more liberal. But as you go more towards uh, spread out land, rural areas, uh, less, suburb uh, less suburban, uh, you're going to find uh, more conservative folks. And, um, you know, just seeing these differences is very interesting to me. 
Yeah, definitely. I think one of the biggest things or one of the biggest shocks to people that grew up in like more centralized locations like cities or at least uh, suburbs that are closer to cities is the relative inaccessibility of different places that you experience coming to a place like this. Uh, like, for instance, even in Albany, where I'm from, you can hop in a car and drive 30 minutes and it'll feel like you're in a completely different place just because of how condensed and concentrated different places and different areas and different towns in the Albany capital uh, greater capital district is but here you hop in your car and drive 30 minutes in any direction from Brockport and it'll feel like you're in the same damn place uh, <laughs> and to, to a lot of people I mean if we have anyone listening in Wyoming or North Dakota or South Dakota or Montana or any of those flyover states it's probably way worse for you guys you probably don't even think we have any idea what we're talking about but um, especially if you're from the, one of the biggest cities in the world, which is New York, which Junior is, and Zach, you're relatively close enough. And even Albany is kind of the same, uh, <coughs> kind of the same situation. But yeah, and like you were talking about with the, with the firing range, I mean, we'll talk about New York and its restrictive gun laws, but I think that's one way to segue into the conversation of the great political divide that we have in this state. Because for anyone listening outside of the state of New York, um, you've probably seen on the electoral maps... Um, that it's entirely a blue state. Uh, but that really is not the case because, it, and this seems to be the trend that I'm noticing in a lot of uh, different places, even even California. Uh, if you look at an electoral map county by county of the state of New York, you'll see the same trend every time. The big cities being uh, New York, obviously, Albany, Rochester, uh, Buffalo, and I think sometimes Syracuse, I'm not so sure about Syracuse, they all vote blue every single time. And but here out in Brockport, in these um, more spaced out, agriculturally based um, rural communities, they could not be more resentful of the political dynamic in this state because uh, most people out, out west here, uh, are, especially those that live on like the farm, farming communities, are extremely pro-Second Amendment and are deeply resentful of the SAFE Act. Like You can't drive more than 10 feet. Uh, in, on one of these back roads without seeing a repeal the SAFE Act sign in somebody's front yard. But based on pure population alone, you'd think that the entire state was, was purely for it. And these are the kind of things that you don't know unless you, unless you live in New York and have kind of traveled over the duration of the entire state. And I, this is one of those reasons why I think the Electoral College is important because, and I'm getting way off topic here, but and we'll, we'll, we'll get back to it, but pure democracy is just dictatorship of the majority. We've come to think that democracy is just the highest pinnacle of human achievement, so to speak. But if 51% if of the population in a pure democracy is voting for genocide, then guess what you're getting? A genocide. And I think that's the biggest problem. That's why we need a, some sort of a system that is more representative of all the different varying beliefs. And I think New York is a perfect representation of why that's the case. It, again, it's just a really politically diverse place, but just pure numbers wouldn't really indicate that. Yeah, Elliot, you know, going into talking about Syracuse, uh, it's actually one of the most divided of cities that we have in New York State because it's not swayed either to the left or the right. It's split down the middle, which is something of a bit of an interest towards me because when I think of New York City and my upbringing from there, it's always been a melting pot. I had friends from a whole different bunch of backgrounds. Many of these people I refer to as, you know, my family, my uh, siblings, if you will, because... One of them is upstate in Binghamton right now. He graduated two years ago, and him and I are complete total opposites. Uh, he's more um, conservative in his values and beliefs. I am more um, just liberal and just moderate, if you want to say that. 
but we've bonded just based on the fact of our upbringing and our understanding. So that's where when people say New York City is a melting pot, I don't disagree with them there. So it comes down to not only the cultural mindset, but our political, social aspects, our um, personal beliefs. And yeah, I mean, coming up here was the biggest shock value when you see people are more straightforward and they're thinking and want to stay one way. And in many ways, I can respect that because it's good to have some foundation of knowing where you're coming from and knowing where you want to be in life. And when people try to interrupt that flow of life based on the belief of the majority, you feel like your voice is being uh, snuffed out. And I find that disheartening. I totally agree with that. And um, I especially think because the uh, population in New York very much so is uh, centered around the city in Long Island. Um, you know, it, it ends up being the case such that uh, New York turns blue just on that um, axis alone. Um, upstate New York doesn't really have that much influence when it comes to uh, gubernatorial elections or even the federal elections because of this swing. And um, recently, especially, um, I've actually ga- uh, caught wind that uh, people are trying to split up New York State from upstate f- down to um, the city in Long Island to make them their own sort of entity in elections and whatnot. And I think that's actually a pretty wise move. This is just my two cents. Um, because especially uh, upstate New York really has its own unique way of life that's very different from how Long Island lives and uh, New York City, of course. And um, I think in that way it's very valuable to split them up. And, um, you know, I know there's definitely a lot of uh, political drive behind that, but I think it's especially important because it's, like, in essence, two different ways of life. Yeah, that's a really good point. Now, Junior, I would actually be really interested in learning a little bit more about the diversity of political ideologies within the city itself because me, um, a lifelong upstate resident, when I uh, hear about the political dynamic of the city uh, nowadays, and I know this is a relatively uninformed perspective, only one three-letter acronym comes to mind, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's she's become such a prominent figurehead that her, from my perspective, radical ideologies have basically come to, for better or for worse, represent the city as a whole. Uh, and I'm not so sure that so many people in the city agree with her. But unfortunately, she's come to represent the face of what many people consider the greatest city in the world. And a lot of people are disappointed in the direction that her ideologies are taking the city's reputation just because, like I said, a lot of the things that she says are so radical. Respect her as a person um, if, if, if you want to, whether or not. Um, like you kind of have to respect her, her demographic and everything, not to play identical politics or identity, identity politics or anything, but just because of her relatively improbable story uh, rising to the top and everything. But d- let's not confuse that with how ludicrous some of her and in- infeasible some of her ideas are. But I'm um, going back to that. She's actually a contributing force as to why the uh, secede from New York City movement within upstate is actually trying to gain some traction. And from an upstater's perspective, I honestly really wouldn't be opposed to it. But I was actually just having this same exact conversation, Zach, with uh, good old Anthony Martinez. Uh, another, for those of you that don't know him, a good friend of ours. We're trying to get him on the show um, in the near future. But he's another lifelong city resident. He also goes here to Brockport, but he hails from the Bronx, actually from Ocasio-Cortez's very district. <laughs> he can tell you himself he's relatively ashamed of that fact, unfortunately, but that's another story. Um 
But overall, what he was saying is he identifies more with upstate politics. He's a relatively libertarian conservative, just like I am. But he is generally opposed. And we'll have this conversation with him on the show. So I don't want to dive too much into it because he's going to be on. But he's generally opposed overall to the city seceding simply because upstate depends on them so much economically. Like almost the the entire state's finances are derived significantly from not not even just the city itself but wall street and if you cut that off that's why new york has such a significant economy despite its relatively small population and geographic size i'm not so sure that upstate would be able to hold its own Uh, if you transitioned it over a period of years maybe even decades maybe but for instance if tomorrow we said um, new york city i'm sorry but you're your own state um we are we as upstaters are moving in our own direction as the true state of new york we would probably go through a recession of some degree just because of how much we depend on them. And we would really have to figure out our economic identity as a state. Uh, piggybacking off of uh, what Z was just saying about AOC, um, I, this brings up a bigger point about the Democratic Party as a whole. Um, I'm, I'm not taking sides here, of course, but um, you know, there's a really big split right now between um, traditional liberals within the Democratic Party and progressives. And this gap is only growing bigger and bigger as time goes on, because a lot of the millennials are being shifted more towards uh, socialist-esque policy, and um, it's becoming a huge tension within the Democratic Party itself. And um, it's going to be very interesting to see um, what happens as they're going forward, but it's very apparent that no matter what's happening, they're shifting more and more left, just as the conservative uh, Republican Party is is going more right and right because of this... um, uh, spread of uh, more socialist-esque ideology. You know, you two, I definitely appreciate uh, your information here because, Elliot, I don't think it's a biased view. I don't think it's even an ignorant view that you had because Miss Cortez, she definitely is one part of the extreme. I won't deny that factor. Uh, But looking in her upbringing and her background, I can understand why. A lot of folks from New York City especially from the parts of the Bronx and Brooklyn during the time she was born and myself, we grew up in a time where gangs were a little bit more prevalent and hard. Um, I've lost a lot of my good friends, childhood friends, because of these violences. But also not only in the sense of just gangs, but more in the sense of how those who were higher up in power took advantage of you know, folks who were trying to work hard, much like the folks up here. No one wants their way of life to be snuffed out or looked down upon. No one wants their way of life to be just ridiculed and taken advantage of. And a lot of members of New York City, specifically whether if they're going back towards the uh, sense of identity politics, that is that will always be a factor in life. Whether we want it to or not, I think it's an absolutely ridiculous factor. But it's something that we have to come to terms with, that people will identify with what they see. And that doesn't help when you have forces like the media always... Con- viewing uh, uh, contriving thoughts and beliefs and never giving all proper accurate information out there. Miss Cortez, I don't know all her ideas. I don't know where she's coming from because a lot of the times when I hear her speak, it's only ideas, nothing factual, nothing that could actually withstand. And you both are familiar with Common Core, I take it. Common Core, good on paper, horrible execution to the point where it has caused acts like the No Child Left Behind to become ennobled because it was like, what was the point of this? What was the point of holding back our children if we are still giving them the same kind of 
foundation educa- uh, education that doesn't really benefit them. So we're going with Miss Cortez, going with the sense of um, the geographics of the New York State area. I could confidently tell you that not everyone has that same belief towards her, but going in the sense of progression, people want to see change. That's why we see with our current president, a lot of folks who voted for him, it's not because they truly believe in everything he said, they wanted to change. Sometimes you want to go a little to the extreme to the left or a little bit of the extreme to the right. Because if you were to go pick a candidate, let's say uh, uh, Miss Clinton, I don't believe there was going to be any kind of change. Right now, people are a little bit more aware of what they believe in, whether if it might be coming into conflict with others, they see that they know what they want. They just don't know how to get about it. Yeah, and because of that, I really think as though we're entering a really unique era in American politics to the likes of which we really have never seen. And honestly, I have no idea how to predict the outcome in the future just because, like you said, we're entering a time now where – and I think our generation uh, is can relatively be attributed to this where no longer – whether you identify with the left or the right or somewhere in between, no longer are you satisfied with – status quo career politicians such as those that have been dominating Washington for basically um, well over the past century. So, and is that a good thing inherently? Yes, we're facilitating change that needs to be facilitated and should have been a long time ago. But the only problem with that is it's a very polarizing dynamic because whereas you might have identified 10, 20 years ago, either center right or center left, just because of the irreversible imminent change that we've been seeing now, people are being polarized to one side of the spectrum or the other. And I really don't see a way in which we're going to be able to unify everyone once again. Uh, Like you said, I think this really started with our current president. Uh, And to quote an idea originally posited by Ben Shapiro, one of the reasons for this is because the right for years was putting up relatively moderate candidates that were willing to uh, negotiate with the left in terms of the presidency, such as McCain and Romney, and the left basically slandered them with all of these, with all of these uh, relatively misconstrued accusations about um, about whether they're whether or not they're racist or bigoted or anything like that. Whereas John McCain and Mitt Romney really weren't at all. And now you get the current president, and whether whether or not, uh, what, regardless of what he believes. It's definitely easier for some people to accuse him of um, certain character flaws. Wh- wh- again, whether or not that's true, just because of some of the um, some of the things that he said on record. So now, basically, the right is saying, "Well, you didn't want these moderate candidates that we were giving you, so here we're giving you exactly what you accuse them of." So, and uh, that really started this this trend towards political extremism in this country. And now people that are dissatisfied with the current president are more inclined to come back at the right or, or the, you could say more extreme right than we had in the past with the same level of polarization, which has produced and bred the proper conditions for somebody like Ms. Cortez to arise. And I really, because now it's almost like a boxing match where you're, hitting each side with harder and harder blows with more polarized, radicalized candidates on both sides. And I really don't see a situation in which this is going to be able to be brought back more towards the center in terms of um, negotiations. And I'm not saying centrism and moderatism is a is that good of a thing. Um, 
just because then you really won't produce any change at all because that's what we had for the longest time. Like say what you will about um, about Mr. Obama and Mr. Clinton uh, and Mr. Bush as well, but compared to what we have now in the um, political arena, they were all significantly more moderate than the politicians that across the board, regardless of the office that we're appointing now, or at least the ones that are getting attention, whether they're elected or not. Yeah, and um, going going off that point, um, we've also come into an era of especially of uh, sensationalism. You know, people with the biggest personalities in politics, a hundred percent of the time, they're going to be the ones who are getting the most attention. You know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, as they say, and this has never rung true as much as it has now. And um, one of the things I kind of want to see is. Um, term limits to be imposed upon all sectors of government. Um, I don't think this is really going to fix the problem necessarily, but it's at least going to help. And this is going to stop career politicians like Andrew Cuomo, and uh, I, I don't actually have any others off the uh, top of my mind, admittedly, but you know, anyone, any real incumbent who has been in there for a number of years, who's been upholding a status quo, you know, this is going to help that. And I'd also like to see um, stronger campaign finance laws as well to give the grassroots campaigns a fighting chance. You know, you see the Libertarian Party and, you know, any any other uh, third party uh, not really getting any sort of traction. And it's really for this reason alone that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have an inherent advantage because they're able to get those big money donors and sponsors to support them. And this dr entirely drowns out third parties and makes it uh, less likely, and in some cases even improbable, especially in the more polarized states, for this to occur. It's a good point that you have right there is that when it comes to those third parties, they definitely have a much more difficult time to just be able to come up in the, uh, any form of elections that I've been seeing. And it's disheartening because a lot of times when you want to look at the comparison with millennials and the new generation of Generation Z, who many of them are now old enough to vote, there's a sense of apathy, and the apathy comes down towards what we've been seeing in over the last few years. Now, you were much younger than I was when 9-11 happened. I could tell you the exact place I was, the feeling that I felt when I was in my mom's uh, living room eating a bowl of cereal and whatnot, and it was corn pops. But <laughs> at the end of the day, there's a big divide, and that's to be expected in life. There's always going to be a division when it comes to George generations, politics. Uh, educational beliefs, religious beliefs, and so on. And we need to come to terms with that, but we also need to learn how to work with that. And that's why I believe the third-party system would be a little bit more beneficial towards this country. Because you can't just stay one stagnant sense. We're, we're going with the incumbents. We have something in the field of teaching called Deadwood. Deadwood, in this sense, means that if you've been teaching for years, let's say 30 years, you've been a math educator, Phenomenal. That's great. But at the end of the day, if you're not doing anything to learn new tactics, learn new styles to help not only motivate your students, but have them actually retain and learn the information, you are what we refer to as Deadwood. Because it, the worst kind of person, in my personal belief, is an individual who believes that they have nothing left to learn in life. Yeah, and specifically in reference to public education, I'm glad I actually wasn't familiar with that term up until now. I'm glad that there is a specific terminology to identify uh, Deadwood, as you say. But unfortunately, the institutions right now exist 
to basically actually t give further protections to said teachers uh, with things with uh, institutions such as tenure. Whereas the long, and this isn't just limited to education, but in basically any any field of employment, especially like career fields as opposed to just jobs, there is going to be some degree of tenure. Which the longer you work there, the more protected your status is, which is honestly detrimental to um, promoting the progress of new ideas and ways of doing things. So, and you could even equate that to politics as well. I mean, it's no secret that the current House of Representatives and Senate are not uh, ideologically representative of, I mean, the current United States population as a whole. And again, going back, to, taking it back to the third party system, I mean, when uh, Gary Johnson was running, I know it was a few years ago, but uh, running for president under the Libertarian Party back in 2016, Prior to, I believe prior to the 2016 election, to get onto the national debate stage, the amount that you needed in the polls was 10% in previous elections. Prior to 2016, it was raised to 15%. And that was just around the time that Gary Johnson was actually starting to get 10% of the polls. So the institution is actually ex uh, exists to deliberately suppress third party systems because as soon as a candidate such as Gary Johnson starts attaining um, some sort of traction and popularity uh, in, in spite of the odds against him or her, <coughs> then the system is going to adapt to ensure that their ideas are suppressing. And that's why for third-party candidates to actually get onto the national debate stage, the percentage of uh, poll requirement that you need is consistently going up. And let's say, I, I believe Gary actually did announce his intentions to run again in 2020. And I would not be shocked. I mean, this is all just theoretical, but don't come running back to me when it happens. If Gary does get 15% in 2020, I wouldn't be shocked if they raised it to 20%. That, and Z, that, that is a brilliant point. And um, I think uh, especially, uh, yeah, just uh, diverging a little bit, that an important thing to do just on all sides of the political spectrum is to absolutely stop talking past each other. It's become unsufferable at this point. Uh, I remember uh, myself, uh, my friend Connor, and um, Dr. Harbin, we actually had a conversation in the hallway after Ancient Philosophy one day, and uh, she was saying that, um, you know, when it comes to very heated debates such as abortion, you know, people just outright have stopped listening to each other. And, you know, it doesn't matter what your viewpoint is at this point. You know, if there isn't any sort of constructive dialogue going on, we're just going to continue to suffer, and we're going to be further divided by media polarization. And, you know, also, too, um, the media does not have an incentive to report objectively. And, uh, you know, it, it's sad to say, but, you know, all institutions, no matter what you do, they're driven by money. And money is exactly where they're going to go to stay in business and to continue their influence they have on their uh, constituency. And, um, you know, you see Fox and CNN being so prominent, and that's because they cater to specific uh, demographics of political groups and views. Now, if you're reporting uh, from a centrist uh, perspective, uh, you're not going to gain nearly as much money because people are not going to be attracted to those ideas simply because um, they might be against the grain. They might not be very um, meta, per se. And um, th this is definitely one of the biggest issues affecting journalism in particular today. Zach, I see exactly where you're coming from, and I appreciate those thoughts. It's absolutely true. Uh, bringing it back to New York City, you two are familiar with the uh, Tobey Maguire Spider-Man films, I take it, right? 
So I love those films growing up as a kid because one thing that they show, as Americans, we love a good underdog story. Who's your favorite uh, Marvel superhero? Green Lancer. You know, I'm not the biggest fan of Marvel. My overall favorite superhero is Batman, but if, if you've got to limit me to it, I'm going to go with Iron Man. You see? Those are two great prominent forces in their respective universes, but they're diff- let me give you an example of two heroes. We got Captain America and we have Spider-Man. What makes these two different? They both come from New York City. They both came from tough, hard backgrounds. But the difference is one is a large superpower. One is someone that people recognize that no matter what, you know that that's Captain America. That's his point of view. That's his standpoint. And, of course, he's going to stick by it because he's Captain America. Spider-Man, he's more in the sense of the true underdog. He's a, a very progressive person. He learns just because he's inexperienced. He learns because he's still young. And that's where our life should be headed. When you're young, you have to learn. And when you're old, you should continue learning. But many folks choose to stay in one set position in life. And that's unfortunate. Going back to New York City, as I mentioned, we love the underdogs. We enjoy that. And that's why Miss Cortez comes into the picture. Because a lot of folks, going with the sense of the identity politics, they identify with her. Whether if you be a minority woman, whether if you be a minority man, whether if you be a member of the LGBTQIA plus community and so on, you identify with her only because she is a minority. But do they truly take the time to see her politics? Do they truly take the time to see her standpoint? And as I mentioned before, the media doesn't really help that. The media tries to polarize things so much. And as human beings, we are, as an extent, judgmental creatures. No matter who or what you believe in, you are a judgmental person. That's how we work in an evolutional state. That's how we're able to make our critical decisions and look at life and say, hey, is this good for me to eat now or is this not good for me to eat? We use ration. We use logic. And too many times we use the sense of pathos in our way of thinking. And that's fine. That's fine because we need to have our emotions to be able to make the decisions based on our experiences. Because if we choose to invalidate those, we invalidate our very own existence. But we can't do so if we're insufferable towards other people. We all three come from different backgrounds, but we're able to sit here today and have these conversations, not because we're trying to one-up each other, but taking the time to understand what made New York State our home. Yeah, and that's a, that's a really interesting perspective, and that just goes back to the dangers of identity politics. Um, <clears throat> it is a very good thing, in my opinion, that people of all different races, ethnicities, backgrounds, walks of life are being more included into the uh, political arena, especially on the national level, like getting uh, more diverse groups of people elected into Washington, in the House and the Senate. The problem is these people have to be qualified. Uh, and I think the re- some of the reasons that Miss um, Cortez is so popular is simply because of her demographics. And unfortunately, that's not a good thing. I want to see as many people of... Uh, different ethnicities and genders and and uh, races elected just because that's more representative of the population. Ideally, we would have Congress be precisely representative, like down to the percent, just because just because people want to see people that they can identify with uh, representing them. The only problem, like I said, is these people have to be qualified and they have to have um, they have to be elected based on their ideals, not based on their demographic. And I think, unfortunately, that Ms. Cortez was elected based on her demographic as opposed 
to her values because again most people like you were saying junior don't take the time to look past um who she is on the surface and actually i analyze what she stands for what she believes in some maybe I, I, a lot of people do for better or for worse identify like actually have done conducted significant research on her and say yeah this is what i believe in uh, this is the kind of person that i want running running for office just because i agree with these from my perspective <laughs> ridiculous ideas but a lot of people don't see it that way and that's fine i mean I'm all for encouraging all forms of social discourse and political discourse, regardless of how insane the idea might seem to me, because maybe if I have a conversation similar to the conversation we're having right now, hopefully I'll learn something. Because, and this is taking it back to the point that you were making, Zach. I believe uh, a few minutes ago you were saying something to the effect of how um, we've unfortunately stopped listening to each other. I would disagree with that, only because... In human nature, we never started listening to each other in the first place. Uh, to quote Jonathan Haidt, a moral psychologist and founder of the intuitionist moral psychology perspective, <coughs> uh, our human nature and reason is solely, human reason is solely existent to satisfy our preconceived innate subconscious notions. So unfortunately, we might think that we're capable of critical thinking and changing our ideas uh, based on rational logic, but unfortunately for most people who, are, who haven't um, discovered that yet, uh, unfortunately that's that is very rare to actually have your mind, especially on charged political issues, actually changed just simply based on a civil conversation. For the most part, if you're engaging in a heated civil debate, for the most part you've already confirmed what you're going to say before the other person even opens their mouth because we are so defensive as a species that our objective is not to learn and seek truth. Unfortunately, human nature's objective is to confirm and validate what we already think we know, even in the face of logic. I mean, we, there have been situations where uh, people have been just dumbfounded in, in any form of debate because all the logic and facts that people are throwing at them is completely reasonable, yet we still have this tendency to stick to our guns, so to speak, and basically do anything, scramble our, um, our rational faculties, so to speak, to, um, basically to defend our ideals any way we can because we don't like our values to be threatened. Yeah, I, I entirely agree. And um, I think the most important part here is what Z is saying is especially to become aware of the cognitive biases that we possess and at least try uh, try very hard to overcome them. You know, much easier said than done, granted. I'm, I'm not saying that it's gonna, it's the sort of thing that's going to happen overnight. You know, that's kind of absurd to me. But um, I think uh, also going uh, piggybacking off of what uh, Junior said uh, a little bit earlier that um, – you know, people start um, arguing with their emotions, and you can see this especially when an issue affects you deeply. You know, you'll become very emotionally entangled in them, and it's going to obscure your reasoning. Now, I think your emotions are valuable in the sense that using it as a sort of intuition to, you know, become in favor of uh, certain positions that you might hold. But, you know, the the ground stops there. You know, as soon as you're able to attain a position you hold, great. But, you know, it, it gets stuck in the muck the second 
that you stop trying to learn more about the issues and the second you stop trying to reason about these issues. You know, um, in, in the history of philosophy, you know, we have many, many, many issues that have become very popular at particular times. And eventually people just stop talking about it. And it's definitely not because the issue was solved. And uh, this is what Dr. Long was talking about uh, to me the other day. <laughs> kind of crazy to me, but, um, you know, that that's just the way it goes. And, um, you know, we need to work hard to make more and more progress on these issues. And as soon as we do listen to each other, you know, this is the sort of thing that's going to happen. And um, I know in philosophy, uh, people listen to each other and people really listen to each other for every part of uh, the argument you may make. But I'd like to see a translation to that in real-world politics and real-world discourse and discussion. Because, you know, the effect is going to be incredible. It's going to make a huge difference in the daily lives of everybody. And it's going to change the way this this country is governed, the way this our local state governments governed. And I think it's invaluable for people to pick up on such a thing. Thank you. Um, looking at this at its perspective as an uncle, one thing I truly value when it comes to my nieces and nephews is that I challenge them to speak to me. A lot of folks say, Junior, you're way too hard on kids. No, I respect kids. I respect their mindset because they're honest. I want to understand where they're coming from, not because I'm trying to persuade them and uh, make them think the way I think, because that's manipulative, and that's not my mindset. I want to understand why they come to the logic that they reach towards. And our battalion, I am very grateful to be a part of, because every day, if I'm in class, if I may have made a mistake, I'm not smoked or drilled about it. I'm questioned and given a chance to defend my thoughts and my reasonings of why I thought this. But also, I'm informed of why I'm mistaken, but not overall why I'm wrong. And there's a difference there. Like, if you have made a mistake, it's up to you to own up to that. Not someone else to tell you, own up to it. It's up to you. But when you have done a wrong, that's something that you have to come to terms with and find a way to make those rights. And a lot of times in life, you're not going to be able to do so. So going again with my nieces and nephews, if I ask them, hey, uh, Cassidy, why did you thought it was a good idea to like sneak out in the house when I told you to stay in the house? And she's like, oh, I wanted to go get ice cream. I'm like, okay, if you wanted to get ice cream, then why didn't you tell me? You weren't here. Okay, if I wasn't here, then why didn't you reach out towards me? I didn't think about that. And... I can't fault her for that. She didn't think about that, but I also had to question her, say, if you took the time and did so, would the ice cream truck still be there or would we have missed it? If we have missed it, then what would you have done from there? And when it comes towards people, and I don't mean people as in just like children alone, but just adults, we had to take that time to really reflect upon what's being told towards us. You both brought up the point that we are defensive creatures. We already have an answer towards what everything's going on and we block that out and Elliot you brought up a good point where we have never actually learned how to listen to each other and that's when you said that I gotta say that's it comes off as pessimistic but it's true I don't believe that I could actually look back at a time and say that I'm truly listening towards someone because I'm hearing what they're saying but am I taking the time to listen towards them that's something you have to learn on your own and that's a skill that comes through self-reflection uh, discovery but also just being empathetical towards people, not saying that you become a passive individual and let people sway you one way or toward another. It means that you are taking the time to truly understand the individual before you and not push them down, but understand that, hey, 
they come from a different form of walk of life that I don't know, and I will hope that I could get something from that. Yeah, I really like what you said about questioning people to understand their course of action and course of logic. It's uh, very reminiscent of reminiscent of the Socratic method, and I really think we all could definitely learn from that. And you mentioned that you don't always have the correct circumstances for that to happen, and occasionally there is a time and place to just tell someone that that they're wrong and move on. Because, like for instance, uh, you brought up the uh, you brought up the battalion. Um, like in the military, sometimes. Um, like if you're in a training exercise or I mean, none of us have ever been in combat, but if you're in combat sometimes and time is short and the situation is high stress, high tension, and you make a critical mistake that could that could be very costly. Sometimes all you have time to say is like, what the hell's? Uh, why did you make that decision? And we just we have to keep moving on. But I mean, in more of a safe civil environment uh, where we actually have the time to get to understand each other. My question is, why don't we? Um, because like you were saying, Junior. Uh, and kind of like I said earlier, we have an answer before the other person even opens their mouth. And I think that is the problem. And I mean, you can't really say much more about this that hasn't already been said. But if you take the time to question somebody uh, and figure out how they arrived at th- that decision or that perspective or whatever they just said, then I mean, maybe if they are wrong and then you genuinely, genuinely disagree with them, maybe... The, the other person will actually, by walking through and uh, walking through their steps of logic, which a lot of the time we don't even do. We have these ideas and we don't know why we have them. But for instance, if you put me on the spot and I have an idea that I'm not too informed about, but I still have the idea, um, then if you force me to like walk through my logic and explain that and, like vocally and audibly and rationalize why I think that sometimes, and this has happened to me before, sometimes I'm like, you know, wow, this, this perspective I have doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense. Uh, and then maybe I'll start listening to you. Uh, but again, like you were saying, Junior, listening isn't something that's innately ingrained in our nature. It is something that it can't even be taught. It has to be, um, the individual has to take it upon themselves to learn. And uh, going back way back a few minutes ago, Zach, you said um, how emotions can actually be really useful in these types of situations. And I would go so, so far as to argue that the stronger your emotions are about any given topic, the more likely you are to become that um, primitive defensive creature that we are all known to be. So, for instance, maybe we need to take emotions out of the equation. Not that there's a time and place for emotions, because there are. Emotions, uh, psychologists for years, decades, have thought that emotions are completely irrational and useless. Uh, More recent research is starting to to, uh, posit that that's not the case, and emotions can actually be very useful in certain situations. But in the in the context of very highly politically charged debates in which we are known to get emotional and defensive, maybe we do need to remove those from the equation. Because, for instance, um, if you were telling me about something that I really didn't know much about and really didn't have a strong standpoint on, um, even it doesn't even have to be anything about politics. Just like day-to-day life, you learn new information. Like, um, for instance, in this building that we're in right now, uh, like, for instance, you can't go out the door after a certain period of time, like the back door, like, let's say 7 p.m., you can't go out the back door. Um, if I try going out the back door past 7 p.m. and you tell me, oh, you can't do that because of the alarm is set on the door, then I'll be like, oh, I didn't know that. Good to know. I'll keep that in mind for next time just because I'm not strongly emotionally attached to that topic. But meanwhile, you, if you challenge my statements, uh, and even I admit to do this, I'll, I mean, if somebody challenges my beliefs on something I'm very, very um, passionate about, that being... Uh, like freedom of speech and the protections for it. If you try to tell me that censorship is good, then yes, I'm going to get emotional uh, in my response to you. And I know that I shouldn't, but 
you have to work really hard to overcome that. So I believe what you said is not necessarily contradictory to what I said. Uh, I'll clear it up a little bit if uh, I wasn't too concise about it. Um, I don't believe it's a sufficient condition. Uh, emotion, emotion is not a sufficient condition for holding a belief. I believe it's merely grounds for, you know, maybe holding a perspective, but not using it to argue for it. Now, I definitely agree when you're saying that um, extreme emotions really does inhibit rational discussion. And I think at that point, it becomes really important for individuals to learn how to moderate their emotions, not to not to null them out. I'm, I'm not making a I'm not trying to make you all like Spock, <laughs> but, um, you know, if you're constantly holding these extreme emotions, whether it be, you know, it doesn't have to be confined to a political arena. There's something wrong there, you know, you know, like extreme sadness, um, you know, that that's that's depression, folks. And, you know, as, as it gets more extreme, you know, that's that's really bad, to say the least, for someone's health. You know, they become a danger to themselves. But, you know, if someone becomes overly brash and bold, you know, that's another example just on the other side of the spectrum where that that could be a danger to others and themselves. So I I definitely agree with you in that light, 100 percent. And I think us, you know, as the upcoming generation, it is more important than ever to perfect a sort of method of argumentation, uh, especially in the political arena to have a model for our kids, to be able to have this fruitful discourse, to be able to develop and further this country, this great country that we live in, to better and further places where we can really become that haven, where we really can become that model of the world. You know, many, many countries look upon us to see what we do, and just so they can mirror it, to try and make themselves better. It, it's, it's whom of us and it's whom of us for future generations to implement this positive change and to try and move everyone forward. Nicely said, Zach. That's absolutely wonderful right there. And as you were speaking, it reminded me of my stepfather. My stepfather has been a prominent figure in my life for the last five years. And even though my mother and him have been divorced back in 2013, he has still made it a point to be a part of my life because of the connection that he feels towards me. And I am very grateful for him. And the reason why I bring this uh, man up is because of how he works with me. He works with me as a young adult coming into life because he works to understand where I think and where he believes that I should be in life. Not where he wants me to be, but where he believes that I should be going based on how I am as an individual. And the way he goes about that is just by having open conversations with me. He has no set opinion on almost anything in life. But he makes it a point to play, I guess you could say, devil's advocate all the time when he talks with me. Not to challenge me, but but also just to uh, encourage me to find new ways to better my thinking, to understand a new form of rationale that I didn't come up with before. Or he has this huge belief knowing that you know the answer that's already in your head, but you don't know how to come about it. I'm going to help you try to reach that point. And once you reach that point, then it gives you the chance to branch out to see the perspectives of based on what other people come off on. And his reason because of that comes from an old Chinese adage. Your experiences in life is not universal. It's very loosely translated. But what that means is that 
even if I am able to reach the point of my self-realization of what I think about and what I truly believe in, I still don't know based on what the other person might think. My uh, close friend that I mentioned who's in Binghamton, like a brother towards me, we still grew up in the same area. We went through the same hardships in life. But my experiences based on my emotional and how I was as a person back then and how he is at that time were two different people. And we've come to respect that and respect each other and work with that for our benefits. He's uh, someone who defines himself as a sponge. He makes it a point to keep learning in life by taking the good and the bad and processing themselves through to better himself. I'm a person, I like to be a stepping stone based on what my grandfather's uh, personal belief is that a stepping stone is not someone who lets you get taken advantage of, but you help others in a sense as a guide to let them go where they want by making their own path. And it's not because you made it a point to make the path for them. They use you as a step that they need to get to where they want to go. So as a whole, when I think of New York State, and when it comes to this generation, I think that's something that would be beneficial for us to do because I'm sure both of you could agree this. There's too many times in the day where if you're having deaf conversation with folks rather than the small talk that goes in in the day-to-day life, you want to truly understand where this person's beliefs are, where they come from, or just understand their form of thinking. People will tell you this excuse. Oh, I don't want to do this because I, I'm, I am scared of arguments or I hate confrontations or uh, I don't like politics. And I'm sorry, I think that's the most asinine thing to this day to even hear because it's cowardly. You can't keep on hiding around in life being afraid of a sense of confrontation. Confrontation doesn't make or break you. It gives you a sense of definition to what what you want to do. Be the change that you want to be in the world. If you want to see something new, you do it. And if people are going to laugh at you, let them laugh. But make it a point that you have a strong foundation. You have a strong sense of background and not just going based on the whimsical factors of your emotion, but more in the sense of what you've learned through your experiences and the experiences of those who have taken the time to share them with you. You see that a lot, especially on this campus, but basically everywhere, people consciously going out of their way to avoid meaningful discussion of any capacity. And I'm, I'm like you where I wonder if you don't engage in any of these conversations or do anything challenging, even so to speak, or exiting your comfort zone, then really what is, what is your purpose? A lot of people don't take the time to really self-evaluate and reflect and figure out what their identity is. Like, yes, you have a name, you have the things that you've done in your life and the experiences that you've had um, and the places that you've been, but that doesn't tell you who you are and what you stand for. And a lot of people haven't, unfortunately, really evaluated who they are, who they want to be, and what they want to contribute to this wonderful, improbable human condition of ours. I mean, the fact that the three of us are even alive right now, sitting at this table at the same time, um, on the same temporal spatial plane right now uh, is so improbable. I mean, the fact that uh, the fact that anyone is even a conscious human being at all, it's th- the chances of, of, of that happening for any given condition is relatively low. And to be alive right now, it's really particularly in this day and age where things are becoming so controversial and so pivotal. And we either have the potential over the next century or so. Um, to either destroy ourselves as a human species or achieve accomplishments that that even today we could never even conceive as being possible. And so we really are at one of the most pivotal turning points in our history. And I think everybody should go out of the way to want to have a part in that. 
I mean, because otherwise you're just living a monotonous, hedonistic life that at the end of the day, you, um, when you're on your deathbed, you reflect on and you see all of these hopefully positive changes that happened over the course of your lifetime. And if you wonder, what did I contribute to that? And your answer after uh, searching uh, like deep inside of your experiences, if your answer is nothing, then I'm sorry, but that's extremely disappointing. And I really think that each and every single one of us, regardless of the capacity, has something to contribute uh, overall. And re regardless of whether we engage in conflict or, or anything like that, even if the outcome isn't always good, even it, like you were saying, June, you're talking about um, controversial things, uh, like avoiding controversy, avoiding meaning, any form of meaningful public discourse, even if the outcome isn't always good. Like we were talking about how hostile it can become. At least you're participating because, in, in my opinion, being, even, even being like the most polarized we can possibly be is better than is better than sitting around and doing nothing and basically wasting all your time away because <coughs> the conditions for evil to arise is for good people to sit around and do nothing um, and <laughs> unfortunately I, I see too many people that just don't want anything to do with this really intriguing situation that we as a human I say human condition have found ourselves in yeah, going back a little bit on uh, what Z said too. Um, you know, when, when I uh, when I come across people, <clears throat> whether I'm going out or you know just just on a daily basis, doesn't really matter. And um, you know, I uh, I tell tell them, yeah, yeah, I'm a philosophy major. I, I really enjoy the subject. I love to read. They're like, uh, I I could never be smart enough to do that. <laughs> very very absurd to me. I mean I mean for one, I mean you can't argue against philosophy using philosophy. Come on, guys. <laughs> But, um, you know, moreover, um, as uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau said in his discourse uh, of the origin of inequality among men, that um, humans are very highly perfectible beings. And, you know, when I was in high school, you know, obviously it's very early on in my development, um, you know, I'm not who I was. I, I'm not who I am now, rather. And um, it, it does show, at least to me personally, and, you know, to whomever I've had interactions with since then, who happen to be my peers from that high school. And, um, you know, I, I, I shunned reading, in fact. I, I used to hate it. And uh, it, it's very sad to me now, because looking back in retrospect, that I lost so much time for progress. And, you know... I kind of have the same resounding thought to whoever holds that point of view now, whoever thinks they're not smart enough for something. You know, at the end of the day, it's not that you're not smart enough. It's it's whether you're willing to work for it or not. And the drive to improve yourself and the drive to improve others around you, that is key in making positive change in this world we live in, in this crazy era of inauthenticity, to say the least. Um, yeah, it, it, it's just outright baffling to me. And, um, you know, in terms of people avoiding conflict, um, you know, that can really, really be demonstrative of the age of technology that we've grown up in. Our, our interactions with others are posited by social media, text messages. We've lost the art of face-to-face -face interactions. And a lot of the times, it's not that a person is actually hostile towards another perspective believe it or not it's just that you fear losing the argument and that is that is beyond sad it's very unfortunate and honestly if there's anything you guys should take away from what we're doing right now 
It's to drive yourself to improve and drive yourself to gain wisdom over the course of your life, to never be done learning, and most importantly, to listen to what others say around you. Not this sort of deaf listening that we just, you know, do in a lecture hall, but listen intently and listen intently, yeah. You know, that's how you benefit yourself, and that's how you benefit others. It's extremely important. I hope you guys, no matter what, you walk away with those three things in particular. Zach, once again, that's greatly put. Yeah, same to you, aren't you? Because you both reminded me of two things that I absolutely believe in in my day-to-day life. And one of those things is that I have never met a person who didn't matter in life. Everyone has potential. Everyone has something that they contribute in this big, wonderful world that we call Earth. And if you take the point to actually take the time and ask people questions, ask them, how can I improve? Or even ask yourself these big questions, then you're going you're gonna to do something. You're already right on the right steps. But that also comes into the sense that you have to just take a moment, take a breather. Don't be afraid to be wrong. Don't be afraid to make a mistake. Um, you mentioned Zach when it comes towards social media outlets. Let's use Facebook. Uh, earlier today, we talked about the fact that I have my statuses. I share my things out there. Does it generally mean that I believe in every single thing that I share? No, but it does mean that I have some understanding or at least interest towards these topics. And the reason I bring up this is because it's all up there. Anyone could go through my profile and find something that I talked about like two weeks ago to two years ago. And my thoughts from two years ago and and two weeks ago is completely different from how I am now. doesn't mean that it's overall that I can't find a way to defend them or even talk about them. It just means that I'm not in that same plane of thinking. I don't have the emotions stirring through me. I don't have um, the time that I've invested towards them in there anymore. Because I have moved on with my life. I'm trying to continue to learn and improve and better myself. And the reason why I bring this all up comes towards another part that I believe in. And this is in a sense of it's who you are in the dark. A lot of times people go around saying, I'm a good person. I don't believe that there's any inherently good person out there. We are flawed creatures. We will make our mistakes. And the only way that we go about our life is through just self-betterment keep on trying if you fall on the floor and scrape your knees you get back up after there as someone who's in the field of physical education i have a concentration in adaptive physical education i have worked with children with disabilities for years and i am every day just in a state of wow and not because they give me inspiration because they're not inspirational people they're like you and myself they're regular people just doing their best. And that's something I respect because anytime, even going back to the days when I used to be an athlete, I hated the type of people who never put any effort in. People ask me, Junior, you're always fast or like, oh, you, you, you always seem like a strong runner. I wasn't always like that. I had to work my butt off to get there. I was a very sick kid. And even now, my health is not the best as it used to be. Um, I went through a lot of childhood abuse and trauma to my body to the point where Typical things that people around our age group can do. I can't do. When people see me huddling around, they're like, oh, you act like such an old man and everything. It's not because I am old. It's because my body has been damaged. But you're never going to see me slacking about and acting like I can't do something. 
and that's because I'm going to put that effort in there. You could be a high-class athlete, uh, all-American wrestler or whatnot, but if you're not putting effort, if you're not putting in work, then you're not truly living your life. You're not truly contributing. Life is about struggle. Life is about doing the work, and if you don't take the time to do so, then you're just wasting everybody else's time and yourself. And going back towards those students, they make me proud just knowing that when I see them, that they're giving it a try. When I see a child who's able to pick up a football and throw it for the first time and make a spiral, that's great. But if I see one who has failed time in and time after, but they keep getting that ball up and keep trying and they're finally able to get it, that's when I know that I'm actually doing something meaningful. And I believe that we could all do that for each other if we give that sense of drive and initiative and motivation by just taking the time to help each other out and rather than have the sense of putting down others. Because back going back to the social media aspect, too many times when people are having these conversations about their political viewpoints or philosophy and all that stuff, it's not really to, let's say, quote-unquote, educate people or to appear woke. It's more in a sense like, ha, 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 I got you, you're trapped, I won this. And going back to, as we talked about with the uh, competitive boxing ring, that's ridiculous this is not a life or death scenario here we're just trying to have a conversation and if you and i could settle at a point and reach the point where we're like hey let's agree to disagree that's fair but let's continue the conversation another date and time rather than just let it be uh, said and done going back to what we had a pr- uh, prior conversations ago a lot of things in life is cyclical a lot of problems that we still have in life are problems that were faced hundreds of years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago. And it's not because that we haven't sitting down and talked about them and whatnot. We just haven't done any action. Life is all talk if you don't put any action towards them. And I hope that in the next few years that we can actually start putting something into methods. Yeah, it's crazy. Like earlier on the show, we were talking about how egotistical human nature tends to be. And yet, and I really don't know how to explain this, yet so many people that you see <coughs> just avoid challenging themselves in any way. Um, and dis- in spite of the fact we're always trying to justify and rationalize ourselves, even if it's nothing of too much significance. And uh, bringing it back to that junior, what we are saying about social media and the boxing ring, anytime I go on Facebook, all I have to do is see somebody's name before I even see what they posted, and I can already predict what political orient if it's a politically charged post what political orientation they're going to they're going to be like i have a lot of friends on facebook who are liberal uh and i know them to be just because anytime i see their name i know that the post below it is going to be um is going to be something leftist um and then the same thing for the right there's some people that are that are very belligerently uh, passionate about conservative politics and all, all i do is see their name on facebook and i know exactly what, what they're going to post and i would be shocked I, it would be audacious if I were to see somebody that I know to be one political ideology on social media post something that contradicts the the views that I know them to affiliate with, and it shouldn't be the case because we should constantly be undergoing a series of, of development and growth, uh, both mentally and physically, and, uh, and change. <laughs> and really, if you go your entire life without changing any of your perspectives, so, I mean, so the crazy thing is some people consider that to be a good thing. Because they've quote unquote won every argument, but I'm sorry, but there's not one single person in the world who's right about everything. There never has been, and there never will be. So if you don't change your mind on anything, that just proves to me that you're a small-minded person who lacks the capacity to engage in any sort of uh, meaningful, meaningful conversation, or at least 
actively engage. I mean, yes, there's deaf listening, but at the end of the day, um, you can walk away without really hearing and internalizing anything somebody said. And I'm not saying, I'm far from saying that you have to agree with people uh, who, who differ from you. And oftentimes you won't. I mean, I've had lots of conversations with people who are complete opposite of my, my political beliefs on every end of the spectrum. And, and like, I would say 90% of those conversations, I've walked away with my mind unchanged. That's not a bad thing. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's difficult to change. And you should only really change your views when it, there's indisputable evidence on the other side as to why you should. Uh, and a, a lot of times that is the case, but a lot of times that it isn't. But when you recognize the, that rare situation where it, you really should reevaluate yourself, that's what sets you apart as a person who's small-minded and a person who's not, because the latter actually will evaluate. Because people don't like to admit they're wrong. Let's just place that plain and simple. Very few people will willingly get in front of a group of people and say, you know what, I was wrong about this. Uh, because they view it as a sign of weakness, which honestly, I consider that to be the complete opposite. If you have the courage and the confidence to admit that you were wrong about something, no matter what it is, that it, to me is a stronger personality trait than somebody who just denies and denies and defends, uh, even in the face of pure logic and reason contradicting um, their every move. <coughs> we consider it a sign of strength to fortify ourselves and our beliefs, but on the other hand, how how strong really is that? If you, if you really don't have to put in that much effort to do that because if you can just deflect and deny and project every counter-argument that's made against you, it doesn't matter what you're talking about, then, then really, how much work do you really need to do to to execute that? Like Kind of like Junior was talking about, about respecting people that are willing to work harder um, for thing, some things that just come naturally to people. Um, you, I think you need to work harder to change your mind than you do to keep your same views. Uh, and a lot of people wouldn't see it that way. But you, you really do because you're not, you're not really working harder in the argument. I, I think you have to work harder to deny logic than you do to support it. But you need to work harder within yourself to like really strain yourself mentally to justify these views even when you're being proven wrong. And yeah, that's, that's kind of the problem. And with uh, what Z said... Um, I also think it's very important to not let society have such a big, strong gravitational pull in what we should think, what we should do, and how we should act. And I, I, I've echoed this point a lot, not necessarily in the podcast, but, you know, just in my daily life. Um, you know, it's really unfortunate when people sort of uh, develop that hind, the hive mind. And once that sort of thing happens, you know, that paves the way for inauthenticity. You know, society will tell you you have to do certain things that, you know, if you're a man, you should be uh, working really hard to become the strongest person possible. And, um, you know, I think to some extent that notion's incorrect. I think virtue is the greatest good. And, you know, my notions of masculinity follow from that notion itself. So, I mean, guys, seriously, think for yourselves. That's the biggest favor you could ever do for yourself. Seriously, you know, it, it can it, it just starts with the small things. It starts with your taste in music. Do you really like that rap music? Do you really love the Migos? I mean, I kind of really do their I I kind of really do like their ad lib style of rapping. But do you really like whatever music society is telling you to listen to or what you should be listening to? I mean, sure, there will become a sort of disconnect between you and the majority of people. 
But I reckon, too, the majority of people are not the people who are going to benefit you and who you're not going to benefit just because they're so innately stuck in their ways of thinking. When I think back towards where I was in high school until now, nothing has really changed outside of the fact that I have grown as a person to be able to properly explain my thoughts and rationale. And that just came through critical thinking, asking questions, making a point to do some research and challenge myself, challenge those around me. I never, I'm sure you're all familiar with cliques. I've never was in a clique in my life. I never went through a phase. I never could say that I have this set group of friends or whatnot. All I did know is that I was myself. I was Junior D. August. I was the son of Harard D. August II and the uh, son of Marie Maude Benoit. And I took that with a great sense of pride where I was my own individual based on who I was and how I construed myself. I made it a point to work hard, not only for myself, but for my family. And when my peers around me would do activities that differentiate from my beliefs, such as as I mentioned towards the two of you earlier today, I am straight edge. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't do any form of drugs or whatnot. And it's not because I go about life in a superiority complex looking down on those who do. It's more as that I have more to lose. If I was to do something that would put me in a health risk, as I mentioned earlier before, I'm not the healthiest of individuals, it wouldn't only affect me. It would affect my sister on my mother's side who's on the spectrum of autism. She has no one to take care of her. She has no family of her own outside of our mother and when it that day comes when my mother passes she has only me and i would be damned if i would ever do anything stupid enough to put my health at risk when it comes to affecting her and i think what i'm getting at with this is that a lot of times we have to look at the bigger picture we have to look at how we do contribute in the lives of others because as i mentioned before i've never met a person who did not matter we all have some effect towards the lives of other people. And when you're speaking from the effective domain, when we to go back to the topic of emotions, one thing that in our wonderful physical education program here at Brockport, a lot of the educational programs we have here, we talk about how do we encourage our students to learn more about themselves? How do they go about having meaningful connections and conversation with folks? And that's something impactful because at the end of the day, when you grow up and you leave elementary school, middle school, high school, you get that diploma, you go to college or you choose not to, when you go into the working world and you become a part of a working society, you will be a contributing factor. Your political beliefs, whatever you choose to do, all matters in the big scheme of things in life. And if you choose not to contribute, if you choose to have this sense of voter apathy to not do your part, if you choose to just be a bystander and never get it up to go ask that lady if she needs help to cross the street because you're scared that you might come off as this kind of individual, then you're part of the problem. And I would hope that people would take it a point in life to do more. Don't sit back. Get yourself to be uncomfortable, as Elliot mentioned. Even if it's the most terrifying thing, just do it. Because if you don't do it now, you never know where you can stand later on in life. Yeah, and I think a big problem is to why that is such a trend is conformity. Like you were saying, is that conformity really is such a dangerous trend because it encourages people um, <clears throat> to just engage in apathy and monotony their entire lives. Um, if you never leave your comfort zone and you never do anything to challenge yourself or your previous way of doing things, 
<clears throat> then you're really just going to end up as another pawn in the system, unfortunately. I really think that every day should be a, should be a journey of striving to differentiate yourself from the status quo. Um, because, I mean, kind of like I was saying earlier, going back to the whole <clears throat> how improbable our existence is and how, how much potential we really have as individuals. Like you're saying, Junior, never met someone who doesn't matter. But I've met, and that's true, but I've met lots of people who don't realize how much that they matter. Um, and that's, that's just the most disappointing part because people don't want to live up to their potential because it's uncomfortable. And admittedly, there's not room for everybody in the world to do something like monumental or colossal um, or like historically significant because if everybody was extremely special, then nobody would. Then nobody would because that's the definition of being different or extraordinary but and i'm not saying none of us are saying that everybody has to go down in the history books but every even if it's something just to satisfy um just to satisfy your own sense of self you don't really need to um to do anything that's always going to be remembered it just could be something simple as living every day uh, as a journey of trying to better and improve yourself in whatever capacity that might be uh, even that could satisfy those conditions but if you wake up every day doing the same exact thing that you did the day previous, that's to me, that's really not a satisfying, fulfilling existence. Um, and what am I going to do to change that? I, I don't know, because it's like we've been saying, it's so hard to influence others when they're so deeply entrenched in, in their beliefs and their ways of life. So and th that's really a good way of tying it all together. I, there really is not that much we as individuals can can do about this trend. Um, but I really would like to see everybody realize the potential that they have and the significance of their own existence. And with that being said, guys, I'm going to leave you off on one final thought. If you want to make change, if you are so deeply moved by this message, this incredible message that we all put together, that we all had this hour-long conversation about, for your benefit, you got to change yourself first. You know, don't expect for anyone else to follow you or for anyone else to even so much as listen to you if you're not willing to make the change first on the individual level. And this is, it speaks volumes. You know, we're all individuals, but at the end of the day, if we can, as individuals, change ourselves, eventually that will spread. That will become contagious. And more and more individuals will want to change themselves and better themselves. And slowly but surely, in that way, we will change the world. But remember, you even just being an individual, you have an impact on yourself, of course, but you have an impact on those immediately around you. If you suddenly change from this message and you portray this message to the other people around you, they will change. And it will become a chain of change. And it will become a chain of greatness. This model for future generations to prosper and benefit and move the world forward in the direction where it should be going. And with that, I think we're just about out of time. This has been this has been incredible, man. Junior, thank you so much for coming on. This was this was an amazing show. I mean, originally remember when we were gonna talk about just like New York culture? That was a while ago. That feels like forever ago. We've been sitting here for an hour and nineteen minutes now and we've gone completely off course, but I would not have it any other way because when we started recording this episode, I really did not expect uh, to end up on the verge of tears because of something so inspirational, but man, that really is what has happened. Junior, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, I really have learned a lot from it, 
and this this has been great. I don't know how we're going to top this one. I thought I I said the same thing last episode when I didn't know how we could top Grand Corletta. Wow, this is this has been wonderful. And um, Junior, any final thoughts? Gentlemen, it's just been a pleasure overall, and I've just been happy to be able to have this time to have these wonderful conversations with you all. So my final thoughts when it all comes down to it is just that do better. Every day, strive for more. And sometimes it's okay if you make a mistake. Just hang back, take a moment to breathe, and do it again. Well, thank you so much again to all the listeners, the fans. Um, I really hope that you learned something from today. And that overall, you just live up to your full potential because that's what today has been about. But we're going to try to get another surprise guest on for next episode. Can't tell you who that's going to be or when it's going to be just because our recording schedule has been so erratic. But just keep in mind that we will be back. D will be back also. That's uh, that's another big change we got going. So I'm really excited for everything that we have been that we've had going so far. Season two has far exceeded my expectations and i can't wait to keep it going um with with uh zach kornberg junior august and on behalf of the great deandre Payne, who will be back i am always leski better known as z thank you for listening